0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Alex Nimeroff took an unusual path to becoming the general counsel at Praxis Precision Medicines. Nemiroff's son was diagnosed with a rare genetic epilepsy and he co founded the biotechnology company Rajcon to develop an antisense oligonucleotide to treat it. Praxis licensed the project and hired Nemiroff as its general counsel. Now the company has released encouraging data from the first four evaluable patients in a clinical study of the experimental therapy. We spoke to Nemiroff, General Counsel of Praxis Precision Medicines, about his journey as a parent of a child with a rare genetic disease, how he came to launch a biotechnology company to develop a treatment for his son, and what other patient families looking to advance a therapy can learn from his experience. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about a, a rare and life-robbing genetic epilepsy, SCN2A, Praxis Precision Medicines, and its efforts to bring a therapy to patients. Let's start with how you became involved in this world when your son Roger was diagnosed with the condition shortly after birth. What happened and, and how was he diagnosed?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so Roger was born in 2014. Um, he was my first child. My wife, prior to his birth, felt something in utero, which in retrospect, we realized were seizures. So he was born about seven hours after birth, we we were told by the doctors who had, had taken him um, away that, that he had had a seizure. And, you know, it, like I said, as our first child, I wasn't really familiar with the process at all. I didn't really know much about seizures, but it was quite, um, it was quite scary and concerning, I, I remember distinctly my wife asked, is he going to die? And there was a hesitation in the response of, we don't think so, but we don't know. So um, so that was, of course, incredibly uh, scary and concerning for us. You know, he he, he was put into the NICU. Um, he continued to have seizures. They started dosing him on pretty heavy anti medication. And within a, a couple of weeks, we transferred him from Miami, where we live, up to Boston. And a few months after that, he, he got the diagnosis of an SN2A mutation. It's actually about three months from birth until we got the diagnosis.
0: And, and at that point, what was understood about the condition and, and what did doctors tell you?
1: There was very little understood. Um, you know, we were told that... that Mutations in SCN2A um, had not been studied all that much. There were a few isolated cases reported, but, uh, but there wasn't all that much known. I, I remember distinctly that the prognosis was poor, but uncertain, largely because, like I said, no one had really studied this um, in any kind of comprehensive manner. SCN2A-related
0: disorders have effects beyond epilepsy. How do they manifest themselves and progress?
1: So what we know today, obviously, from from a large body of data um, is that, you know, seizures are one of, of many comorbidities in this disease. Certainly, you know, the most apparent, um, in, in many cases, the most problematic. Beyond that, you know, most children with this disorder, um, overwhelming number, do not talk. Um, most do not walk. There's you know, there's gastrointestinal issues, there's sleep issues, there's, you know, some doctors will tell you there's a lot of intellectual disability. Um, I, I personally take a little bit of issue with that, but ex- from an expressive language standpoint, um, it, it's, it's very complex and, and not all there. Um, a whole just range of symptoms, pretty much any symptom you could think of for a, a pretty severe disease um, exists within this one. And then one of the most concerning is something called SUDEP, which is um, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. And within this disease, that, that's quite common. You know, from, from some of the data that we've looked at recently, um, you know, we, we project around 20% of kids diagnosed with this disease will, will die before um, teenage years.
0: I think one of the things people who don't live with someone who has a seizure disorder, uh, they may not understand the not only the frequencies with which they occur, but what happens within a household when, when an event happens. W- what's that like?
1: Yeah, so, so it, it's quite concerning and, and, and all encompassing. Um, you know, within this disease, it, it, for many children, certainly my son falls into this category, they're happening pretty frequently. Um, and so, you know, over time you almost get desensitized to them um, for better or for worse. But, you know, what, what happens is what happens with, you know, typical kids um, or adults that are having seizures where you need to immediately um, be by the kid's side, supporting the child, making sure their airways are open, um, making sure they're in a safe place, you know, in, in many cases, um, you need to administer rescue medication, which is a very potent dose of uh, benzodiazepine. These days, it's administered intranasally. Um, And beyond sort of the immediate acute response, you know, the child will thereafter be tired, usually need to sleep. It, It becomes incredibly disruptive to the day, let alone, you know, the risks that are 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 taking place. And frankly, what does not get discussed at all, but I, I would argue is is close to as important is just the emotional toll that this takes on every one of the family members, um, the parents, you know, certainly siblings, uh, you know, and and everyone else around. You can only imagine not only this happening within a house, but anytime, um, you know, when when we do go out and when we bring our son out, this could just happen at any moment. And and just what that's like is uh you know, it's, it's incredibly overwhelming. One
0: of the concerns of seizures disorders is that they can cause progressive damage to the brain. What's known about this? So,
1: you know, th- th- there's really limited definitive evidence of, of- reversible versus irreversible damage, you know, from seizures, you know, sort of chronic seizures. There's no question that the more seizures that are happening, the bigger risk. And it's not just in the form of, you know, potentially reaching a point of irreversibility, but things like what I mentioned, SUDEP, this unexpected death in epilepsy. And so there's no question when you look at this disease and and when we started to look at this disease more from a therapeutic standpoint, You have to focus on seizures first. It's so important. It's so important, you know, from a just practical day in, day out standpoint, and also just for, you know, uh, sort of risk management as it relates to just this awful disease.
0: Well, you you mentioned some of the medications that you've used, but what treatment options exist today and, and how responsive is someone with SCN2A to existing therapies?
1: So this, the treatment options that exist today are for the most part the same um, treatment options that have existed for 50 plus years, um, you know, with some exceptions, but certainly with minimal exception as it relates to the efficacy of these treatments. Um, you know, I would argue they, they do not meet the needs of patients. Um, you know, I think certain patients have better responses to certain medications, um, but for the most part, patients are not having, you know, Any sort of prolonged seizure control. Um, You know, there's there's patients that, you know, like my son, who will respond better for a period of time and then all of a sudden he'll just have breakthrough seizures that we can't control using the same medications. The the other real challenge with the existing landscape of medications is the the awful side effect profile of these drugs. Um, you know, just, just to illustrate this but probably the, the, the best medication within the SCN2A community consistently right now is phenytoin dilantin. This is a medication that was approved, I believe 70 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. Um, the side effect profile is, is awful, but this medication cannot be dosed within, um, you know, hours of food or you're really impacting the absorption and the exposure levels. So what we need to do, and this for my son is administered three times a day. He he cannot eat for an hour and a half before the medication and an hour after, and he gets the medication three times a day. When you think about the amount of of waking hours, and then you're pulling out on both sides, so effectively three hours, um, you know, more or less, three times a day for a child, um, you know, the, the inability to eat any type of food, it becomes incredibly burdensome to do this. And despite all that, we're not getting consistent seizure control. There's massive fluctuation naturally with this medication. Um, so it's it's just very hard to control. We also need to draw his blood very frequently to check his concentration levels of this medication, because as it swings up too high, he's vomiting, he has nystagmus, um, he, he's just incredibly sedated. And when it drops too low, he has breakthrough seizures. So it, it's... It is just an incredibly burdensome landscape.
0: I should note, your your son's no longer a little boy. How, how old is he today and how's he doing?
1: So he he's nine years old today. Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot, um, you know, from both friends and professionally. You know, I would say relative to the disease um, progression and, and just the natural history of this disease, he's doing well. But that said, you know, he's still having frequent seizures, um, you know, a a lot of side effects and issues, a ton of comorbidities. He's nonverbal, um, you know, sleep disruption. I think he's doing great because I know how bad this disease is. And, you know, relative to some of the patients, um, I could say that. But by no means would anybody look at the situation and think he's doing well, unfortunately.
0: You're an attorney today you're general counsel at praxis but you spent most of your career working outside of biopharma you did co-found a biotech with another scn2a parent raj khan to develop a treatment for scn2a
1: how did this come about so when when we got the diagnosis and you know maybe six or so months after we we realized there were no good treatment options for for our son and you know, I, I I kind of realized at the time that it, unless we drive something towards discovering something new, um, nothing's going to happen and no one's going to do it. You know, there's there's a ton of ultra rare diseases, as you know, way better than me. Um, and to get a company or, you know, even really a leadership at a company to be interested in one, you kind of have to take that upon yourself. Um, you know, I, I look back to and I, I also realize that this was my first child. I I wasn't familiar, you know, with what, you know, what a newborn and what what that experience is like immediately when we got this diagnosis, I I sort of went into this mode of, we need to figure something out to treat this. And, you know, I'll I'll use the phrase loosely fix this. Um, And if I'm honest, when I look back, I think part of this was my own subconscious, maybe fear of, of, actually dealing with and feeling the pain of the situation and what he was going through. Um, you know, but, but whatever it was, I I knew that we had to drive something ourselves. Um, you know, I've learned that sometimes doing the right thing for the wrong reasons can ultimately lead you to doing the right thing for the right reasons. And and so I, I think that is what drove me initially. Um, but at the end of the day, we started really contacting, any doctor, any scientist, anyone who might have um, some understanding of what was going on with mutations in this gene. I, I met another parent early on, as you mentioned, Kelly, who shared the, a similar focus around, we're going to figure this out. This is not a life for for our kids or any kid, and we're going to find uh, an alternative option. And um, And we were just relentless. and And you know, we discovered uh, there was a scientist in, in Australia, Steve Petru, who had done some early work around this particular gene in epilepsy. We connected with him. And, you know, I also realized back then, in order to really be able to drive this in a way that I, I knew we would need to in a very competitive, you know, drug development space, we would have to do this through the the, the um, route of a, of a company versus a nonprofit foundation in order to really Get this prioritized and have a seat at the table. So, we were fortunately able to make a, a commercially viable case for somebody to develop in this disease. The diagnostics were getting better, and you could start to see the shape of an actual community. So, we created a company called Rajcon, n- named after my son Roger and her son Connor. And we we learned from Steve that you know at the time we, we felt that. Mutations in this gene caused a caused really a gain of function in terms of the biophysical characterization, and there would theoretically be a way to downregulate, you know, the the mRNA of SCN2A through a, an antisense oligonucleotide, an ASO approach. And there was really only one company back then that was fairly well known for for developing these types of drugs, um, and it was Ionis. Um, and so we went out there and we pitched them on working with us to discover um, and then potentially develop a, a new therapeutic approach for SCN2A. And fortunately, very lucky for us, they agreed.
0: Well, what gave you the confidence you, you would be able to do this as someone who wasn't steeped in, in the industry at the time? And and what kind of capital did you think you would need to to raise? And how how have you funded all this work?
1: So, you know, it was really, it was a bit of being naive about what this would take um, because in my mind, there was no alternative to finding a solution for this. Um, and so we really, we, we were just going to, you know, keep going um, no matter what. And, and it was incredibly challenging as, as you well know, as you know, the drug development path. You know, I mean, countless people in positions of power would tell us, go home, you know, take care of your kids. You're not gonna really change the course of this disease. Um, and I think from, for, for us, there was just no alternative. And, and it becomes easy and almost simple when, when that's the mindset, because you kind of just keep fighting. What, what becomes very difficult is that in parallel, you need to take care of a very sick child um, which requires a lot of time, focus, you know, and the, the emotional toll was enormous. Um, the, from a capital standpoint, as you know, to develop a drug, of course, requires many tens of millions of dollars. As I looked at the path, what I realized was we just needed to raise enough money to get to a point of demonstrating some degree of proof of concept. And then we would have to partner because the capital requirements were just too large and we didn't have the built-in expertise to be able to actually develop. So we raised a little less than $5 million to be able to get this through partnership with IONIS to a proof of concept stage. And and then we were at the point of, you know, looking to partner on the continued development. So you mentioned
0: the the partnership with IONIS. There was also a collaboration with the Florey Institute of Neuroscience what was that relationship and, and how did it come about?
1: The One of the first conversations um, with Steve Petru, who at the time was the deputy head of the Flory Institute um, was really a question of, okay, what do we need to do to better understand this disease um, in contemplation of, of ultimately being able to treat it? And he said, we need to develop model systems to study this disease, um, essentially, you know, animal models, rodent models, um, stem cell models. And so we engaged him and the Florian Institute to do that work. Um, And they've continued to be a partner all the way through to to this day.
0: How did the discussions with Praxis come about?
1: So the former CEO of Praxis, um, he had been at at Claris, which is one of the venture capital firms that that originally seeded Praxis. and they were looking to, as they started the company Praxis, to really go after three different um, genetic epilepsy targets. They wanted to go after SCN2A as one of the three, but we had actually by that point made some decent inroads um, with respect to the model systems that we had created and um, and starting conversations with Ionis around possibly a, an antisense oligonucleotide so um, we, we just decided to stay connected, and um, and he was providing some some informal uh, mentorship and guidance on, on really the drug development path. When we got to the point of proof of concept um, with this ASO and these animal models, we, we needed to partner because the capital requirements were too big. And IONIS had interest in partnering with us and Praxis had interest in partnering with us. And in kind of looking at what would be the best, for the program. Um, You know, Praxis really was a genetic epilepsy company. They were committed to developing drugs, you know, for genetic epilepsies, and and ultimately we we decided to do a a deal with them. You're now general counsel of Praxis.
0: How did that come about, and what does it mean to be working with a company that's developing a treatment for a disease that afflicts your son?
1: So so it came about because part of any deal we were going to do, would, from our standpoint, require that Kelly, Steve, and myself um, come along with that deal and be a part of the company because we, we all know well that, you know, the programs get shelved constantly. There's competing priorities and limited capital and resources. So in order to ensure that this program, you know, this drug would continue to progress, we needed to actually be sitting at the table. So. Um, I have a law degree. I practiced for a number of years and there was kind of just a logical fit for me to step in um, in the legal role. And, and ultimately that progressed to to now be general counsel. It's a uh, it, it's very, you know, it, it's exciting to be a part of this, um, developing a, a treatment for 2 a disease, knowing it so well, it, it allows um, myself, you know, and Kelly as parents of, of kids with this disease to provide very unique perspectives um, on the disease and what it takes. There's no question that every time there's a data readout, um, anytime a challenge arises, and of course we all know there's many, um, it, it really, uh, it, it's really tough um, because we're so close to this disease and and a number of the kids, you know, there, there's a family with a child um, who both she and I have been very close with for many years um, and the kid passed away uh, two days ago. And, you know, this, this stuff happens along the way. I I think that the best that we try to do is use that as fuel and really kind of paint the picture of, of how much these families and these kids are all counting on us um, throughout the company. And we're doing that constantly.
0: What's known about the, Results from studies that have been done to date for the therapy.
1: So we we've run um, one clinical study so far um, with this drug, a first-in-patient study. Uh, this was designed as a safety study, largely um, really to demonstrate that you know that this molecule was was safe. Um, you know, there there was some hope internally that we would see some, maybe very small efficacy. I know externally, I, I believe that was shared. And I, I think um, there was an analyst who, who stated that, you know, 10 to 15 percent efficacy just to demonstrate there's a signal, um, you know, would be would be wonderful. We we just read out um, the preliminary data a few weeks ago from that study. And uh, and it, it kind of blew us all away. There there was a 45 percent median seizure reduction. Um, there was thirty-five percent increase in the number of seizure-free days. There were really there was no concerning safety issues, so no serious adverse events or, or treatment-emergent adverse events related to the drug. We saw a very clear response after a single dose. Um, you know, it, it was pretty phenomenal, and it just reaffirmed what we always believed to be true. Um, and and I believe to my core that that this molecule absolutely um, impacts this disease
0: and this this is the ASO you were developing at Rodcon what's known about the the way it works
1: um so you know so so this is a an ASO that downregulates the mRNA in, uh, in scn 2 a which you know the the disease population which only was really developed in terms of the understanding over time it, it actually breaks into um you know sort of two big buckets which is Children whose mutations cause this this gain of function um, and then children whose mutations cause a loss of function. The the phenotype, the profile of, of the patients are very different. Um, you know, this drug, Prax222, which was formerly rajkan 222 um, really, you know, is meant to treat, because it's effectively downregulating, um, is meant to treat these gain of function patients. And, you know, we... we we believe this drug has the potential to be disease modifying, um, just based on the mechanism. So, not only to impact things like seizures, but over time to really change the entire course of the disease.
0: And what's the development path forward?
1: So, our plan now is to to take this, uh, you know, the full data um, from this study, along with you know all of the different. Um, you know, preclinical studies that were done and, and to bring this to, uh, to the FDA and really to discuss the path. You know, given the response that we saw in this first study, um, and of course, given the disease and how, how awful this disease is, um, we're, we're really looking to initiate a global pivotal study um, in, in 2024.
0: What advice would you offer other patient families looking to advance the development of therapies for their conditions and any lessons learned from your experiences, particularly with fostering collaborations with both researchers and pharmaceutical developers?
1: Yeah. So there's clearly a bunch of lessons learned along the way. And of course, in retrospect, like I think anything in life, I could say I would have done this versus that, Um, you know, we all know it's a very challenging path, emotionally, you know, physically, practically speaking. Um, I, I think if there is if there is a, a mindset that really there is no alternative, um, which I think becomes really important as you start to face a lot of the the challenges, um, that's really the only way to do this. Um, so it, it it becomes a relentlessness around driving something forward. You know, in our disease, nothing was really known, Um, you know, it was sort of starting from scratch. I think, you know, as I I talk to other families and other diseases, the landscape's always different. Um, You know, it it becomes a matter of seeing a path that you believe is viable and then just going after that um, relentlessly. And it will change, as it did for us at, at many different time points. Um, but really, the, the commitment is the single most important thing.
0: Alex Nemiroff, General Counsel at Praxis Precision Medicines and co-founder of RajCon. Alex, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thanks, Danny. Great to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at LevineMediaGroup.com.